And now, The Good Fight with Yasha Monk. My name is Sheikh Yatiri. I am a policy associate for the Renew Democracy Initiative and a writer for The Bulwark. I recently published an article for Persuasion titled Opting Out of Whiteness. The article is informed by my experience as an immigrant from Iran and my studying the history of non-white immigration to the United States. As I write, the first non-white immigrants to America were Germans. The Irish, Jews, Italians, and Middle Easterners followed. They all fought to be counted as white, and they all eventually were accepted as white. Now, for the first time, white groups are trying to be categorized as non-white because of the benefits that come with not being white. In my essay, I argue that the concept of skin color is subjective and quite silly, and our objective should be doing away with it and rediscover the wisdom of being colorblind when it comes to race. I hope that you read and enjoy my essay. Sheikh Hatiri's piece called Opting Out of Whiteness was published by Persuasion. To learn more about the community we're building at Persuasion and to get similar articles directly into your inbox, head to www.persuasion.community. My guest today is Lord Sumption. Jonathan Sumption is a former justice of the Supreme Court of the United Kingdom. He's also an accomplished historian and a frequent commentator on public affairs. We talked about uh, why the conflict between a popular demand for safety and security and the preservation of democratic freedoms is more intense today than it used to be in the past. We debated what kind of role Supreme Courts, not just in the United Kingdom, but also in the United States, should have in overturning government decisions, in making judgments that have far-reaching consequences for public policy. And finally, we reflected on what the likely future of democracy in the Anglo-Saxon world, but also beyond, might be across the 21st century. It was a searching, wide-ranging conversation. I hope you enjoyed. Lord Sumption, welcome to the podcast. I'm glad to be here. You've written very interestingly about the state of democracy and the reasons we have to worry from a historical perspective about its future. Why should we be concerned about democracy, even in countries like the United Kingdom or perhaps the United States? We should be concerned because it's in the oldest democracies that the greatest disillusionment with democracy has arisen, particularly the United States, but also very much in Europe, the United Kingdom and France. We should be concerned because there's a general attitude that democracy is the default position for most societies. All historical experience contradicts this and suggests that it's actually an extremely fragile system. I've no doubt that it's the best way of reflecting people's wishes in government policy. But the problem is we don't agree about this about what government policies ought to be, and the temptation to resort to extra-parliamentary or extra-congressional systems in order to decide things is generally very great. 
democracies depend on two things. They depend on an institutional framework and they depend on a cultural background. It isn't usually the institutional framework that fails. That's still there. What fails is the cultural background, which is the desire of people to make it work, the desire of people to respect plurality of opinion and to accept that sometimes they can't get their way, however important the issue and however right they think they are. In most countries which have lost their democratic status, the institutions are still there. There are still elections of a sort. There are still parliaments, but they are largely meaningless because the culture that sustained them disappeared. It strikes me that when I was in graduate school and starting to learn about these subjects, there was this tremendous certainty about the future of democracy. And people were saying, well, look, in all of these very rich, consolidated democracies, they've never failed. How could they possibly go wrong? And I was thinking to myself, well, you might have made a pretty similar argument about absolute monarchy in the early modern period. It's interesting, though, that now the consensus seems to have flipped. It seems to have gone from, you know, democracy is absolutely safe to democracy is about to collapse tomorrow. Why do you think that in the 250 years that some form of American democracy has existed in the however many years you want to say British democracy has existed, it is at this point that we're seeing this special stress on the institutions or perhaps on the willingness of people to put up with the inevitable frustrations of democracy. I think there are a number of reasons, but the most important of them is risk aversion. This is in one sense a perfectly natural development of human societies once a larger number of people becomes involved in public affairs. But over the last century, people in the West have become progressively more risk-averse. They've become progressively anxious that the state should protect them against risks which are not just sudden, external, once-in-a-century type catastrophes, but are very much part of the ordinary risks associated with any kind of life in which there is a reasonable degree of individual freedom financial risks, health risks, safety risks of one sort or another, we expect a high degree of protection from the state against these risks. The problem is that when you get a fear of risks which are associated with ordinary life and you look to the state to deal with that, the state will react in the only way it knows which is by introducing coercion in order to prevent you doing the things that give rise to the risk and prevent everyone else doing them as well. So you get a situation where the state suppresses part of life in order to suppress the taking of risks, which is actually inseparable from any kind of free activity in a democracy. I feel a little bit like the child who asks you a why question, and when you give an answer, I ask the next why question. But I guess the natural follow-up is, well, why do you feel that it is at this point that people prioritize security over liberty or over other concerns to that extent? I think the reason why people look to the state for protection from relatively ordinary risks is that they can see what the state can do. But some generations ago, the main constraint on state power was the fact that the state was ignorant and powerless. The state's command of information now is absolutely unparalleled and miles away from anything that earlier generations had experienced. 
So the state is immensely powerful. It can do many things that the state could not do in the time of our parents and grandparents. People look to this great power of the state and say, why shouldn't that be mobilised to protect us? And the answer to that question is that it can be, but only at the expense of depriving us of the full range of things that a free person has traditionally been able to do. So that's very interesting. So you're saying that perhaps, as the phrase implies, the desire for security, the idea that the good of the people is the highest law has always been there. But the ability of the state to act on it has been limited. Absolutely. I mean, the great apostle of this way of looking at things was Thomas Hobbes, who made no bones about the fact that he was arguing for an absolute state. And he believed that individuals surrendered their liberty absolutely and irrevocably to the state in return for security. Now, the state was not in a position when Hobbes was writing in the 17th century to provide protection against more than a small range of risks, but it is in a position to do it now. Well, at least on one interpretation of Hobbes that I'm quite fond of, Hobbes, in a way, wanted to set people free. He had the sense that if you don't have some form of state authority, the restriction to what you can do, to how you can move through space, to how long you're going to live is going to be so extreme that you end up, even on his own very minimalist conception of freedom, with a lot less freedom than you have in a civil society with a pretty oppressive dictator. This is, of course, a debate that's coming back today. I continually hear the argument, like you, I'm a little skeptical of it, that lockdowns for something like COVID, for example, aren't just appropriate, which may be true under certain circumstances, but that they actually are increasing of liberty, that vaccine mandates are not a restriction of liberty in order to pursue other values, but that they actually expand the realm of liberty. Why do you disagree with that point of view? Well, people who say that are presumably talking about uh, freedom from disease as being the advantage of lockdowns. Now, let's assume that lockdowns work. There's a big argument about that, but we won't go into that at the moment. What they are really saying is that lockdowns are justified in a democracy because the majority are well served by an arrangement which minimizes their chances of getting seriously ill or dying from COVID-19. What is implicit in that is that there is no moral limit to what the state can do in order to make people feel more secure, in this case, from an infectious disease. I believe that there are moral limits. I'm using the word morality in a very broad sense. But I believe, first of all, that there are some areas of human existence which are inescapably our own private domain. One of them, for example, is whether we are going to get vaccinated and admit a particular drug into our bodies. The choice that I've made is that I want that. But I think that it's a choice which can rationally be made the other way. I cite that simply as an example of one area which seems to me to be inescapably outside the domain of state action. I don't accept that that is a sufficient justification in all circumstances. It depends on the degree of restriction. Compulsory vaccination, compulsory lockdowns, effectively house arrest, seem to me to be at the most extreme end of deprivations of liberty. And we should not simply look at those in the same way as we look at speed limits or stopping at red traffic lights. 
this is, I think, a very fundamental issue. The problem here, and the problem with COVID generally, it's a very good example of what we were talking about in more general terms, is that human beings have had to live with disease for a very long time. This disease is not outside the range of experience that humanity has had for many centuries. The more you ask the state for protection against minor risks, the greater the danger. That may sound ironic, but once upon a time, it was considered that the state, even in a democracy, could assume despotic powers, for example, in wartime. War being, at least for Western societies, a rare instance of the breakdown of normal civilization. We've moved beyond that to a situation where people expect the state to provide security against much more minor and much more frequent risks. The more minor the risks that we are not prepared to tolerate, the more frequent the intervention of the state is going to become, and I fear the more permanent it's going to be. Because harking back to what I said about the culture that sustains any democracy, these cultural factors are essentially self-restraint by politicians and by people, a consciousness that there are many things that can be done which shouldn't be done. Once you cross that threshold, once you say, OK, well, let's do it, then the spell has been broken, the magic has gone, and the self-restraint, which was previously the basis for democratic existence, has vanished. You've thereby made it a great deal more likely that this problem is going to come back the next time that there is some quite possibly rather minor crisis. What should governments do in those situations? You know, somebody studies democracy, I find that there's sometimes sort of paradoxical conditions or determinants of what is going to happen. One of them is that it can seem safer to have many veto powers in a political system in order to stop the rise of a dictator. And yet there's an interesting empirical literature in political science which suggests that the semi-presidential systems of Latin America, which have many, many veto powers, actually end up favoring the rise of a dictator because things become so dysfunctional that somebody arises and says, look, we have to disregard all these institutions and ignore them because they're stopping us from doing all the things we need to do. Just give me all this power and I'm going to do what the people really want. You know, I am very tempted by your arguments as somebody who is deeply committed to philosophical liberalism that many governments have perhaps overstepped the bounds of their legitimate authority at various moments in the pandemic. But of course, the other argument is that if governments said, look, in a democracy, we just can't protect you from a deadly disease and our hands are just tied, uh, that may actually also favor the rise of somebody who says, if this system can't keep you safe, give all the power to me and I will. That's absolutely true. But what it means is that one is looking at restraint, at a respect for certain cultural norms, not just on the part of governments and presidents, but on the part of the people in general. There will always be people, one hopes that they will usually be a minority, who do think exactly in the way that you describe. The problem arises when a very large proportion of the population starts to think in that way. I mean, I think some aspects of the last five years of the history of the United States tend to bear this out. You can have all the checks and balances in the world, but the combination of a large sector of the population that wants a different approach and a ruler who is prepared to give it to them can be devastating. So tell me more about how you interpret the last five years of the United States, because a different interpretation would be 
that America did have a president who clearly did not care about limits on his legitimate authority, who clearly does not care about the most basic rules and norms of the American Republic, but who, through a combination of the separation of powers and the deep federalism of the United States, was stopped from becoming tyrannical, was stopped from being able to steal elections that he wasn't even administering himself because it's being administered in a highly decentralized way. And that actually the reason why Trump ultimately did have, at least for now, to leave office is precisely not the political culture of the United States so much as its institutional setup. I don't disagree with any of that. At the same time, what the experience of Trump's presidency seemed to suggest was that there are many perfectly legal ways in which you can subvert the democratic framework. You can make, for example, the Environmental Protection Act largely meaningless by exercising purely administrative powers entirely lawfully. You can displace officers so that all the existing employees resign because you've moved the headquarters to somewhere out in the sticks where they don't live. And then you can exercise your presidential powers to appoint not perhaps the top officials who may need congressional approval, but the raft of people below them. You just appoint people who don't believe in environmental protection. Now, that's just one example of the way in which a president of the United States, like the president of many other countries that have an executive presidency, can effectively circumvent the checks and balances by the exercise of the purely administrative powers that any government has got to have in order to perform government of any sort. That's the danger. And the world, of course, is absolutely full of countries where democracy and freedom have been subverted entirely legally in a system where the legal basis of the constitution ought to make that impossible. But the fact is, so long as governments have, as they must have, basic powers to administer, a government that really doesn't believe in the system is perfectly capable of getting around it. Yes, and I think probably the most plausible account of the Trump presidency is, first of all, as I've been saying for many years now, that in a populist Olympics, he would not take the gold medal. He wouldn't even take fourth or fifth place. But he came in without a very clear idea of what he wanted to do, without a very devoted team. And also uh, that he was only in office for four years. But if he had had eight or 12 years, things may have ended up looking very, very different. Yes. If he'd had a second term, he would not even have had to worry about the prospect of the next election after four years. I think that there are many respects in which it could have been worse and in which the United States system of checks and balances did in the end work. But there are many respects in which it didn't. That is a problem, I think, not just for the United States, but for just about any system. In my country, in the United Kingdom, the government has persistently sought to ignore conventions that make the system work and has on occasions got away with it. What are some of those examples and how worried are you about those? I still have a little bit of trouble interpreting somebody like Boris Johnson. On the one hand, he does not seem to me to be in any way as extreme as Donald Trump. That's certainly the case culturally. I don't think that most people in Britain think that he's a bigot. I don't think that most people of color in Britain have any kind of fear of him. It is also true politically. I think he is in many ways somebody who has grown up as part of the British establishment and grown up within the British institutions, but he certainly has no intention of destroying them. And yet 
when I look on the other end of a ledger, something like his decision to provoke parliament in order to stop it from interfering with his executive actions, does seem like a pretty extreme step. And it seems to me that I'm trying to think, let's put it neutrally, I'm trying to think of the worst breach of British democratic norms before that, or one that was worse than that, nothing readily comes to mind within the last few decades. So I wonder how you assess that overall. I think you are quite right to say that Boris Johnson's instincts include a number of basic liberal instincts which should not cause people to be afraid in the way that some of them would have been afraid of the more extreme ideas of Donald Trump. So he is clearly not a Donald Trump. At the same time, when he wants to do something, he is completely indifferent to constitutional principle. The only question that he asks is, will it help me get my way? Will I get away with it? I mean, we have had a recent example, which is quite interesting, partly because it demonstrates the resilience of even a system of unwritten constitutional practice. Some weeks ago, Boris Johnson whipped his MPs through the House of Commons in support of a motion not to apply the ordinary disciplinary rules to somebody who had engaged in improper lobbying. Now, he got the vote through. This was contrary to the convention that you do not interfere with the ordinary workings of the disciplinary system within the House of Commons, except on a cross-party basis. You don't make it a party issue, because if you do make it a party issue, then the majority party, which at the moment is the Conservative Party, can essentially do what it likes with Parliament. Johnson ignored that. He got away with it for 24 hours. There was then such a loud volume of protest, including from his own supporters, that he was compelled to turn 180 degrees round, revoke the resolution, start again, and abandon the attempt to save this particular individual. Now, that's an instance in which Johnson was prevented by unwritten cultural norms from doing what he wanted to do. But it is relatively easy, particularly in a country where very large numbers of the government's powers are delegated powers. You don't need further parliamentary assent before they're exercised. It's relatively easy to ignore parliament if you set your mind to it. And I think that starting with the Brexit crisis between 2016 and 2019, there has been a general feeling by those who believed in Brexit that the result of the referendum basically legitimised absolutely anything that you might wish to do in order to get Brexit through on the terms that the government wanted. And that inaugurated a period of some three years in which the governments of both Theresa May and Boris Johnson essentially abused the very strong position that the executive has in the House of Commons in this country, in the United Kingdom, to get through policies that did not have the support of the majority of the House of Commons. Now, that has created a mentality in which the government has got used to the idea. Now, it's fair to say that many of the more outrageous acts of Boris Johnson were, in fact, the result of the influence of one of his advisers, Dominic Cummings, who was a person with an utter contempt for democratic norms, including the centrality of the House of Commons, which he thought was undesirable. He basically believed in a more populist, a more presidential style in which the government should not be amenable to 
particularly tight control in the House of Commons. The problem we have in this country is that we don't have a written constitution. We are a monarchy. We were once an absolute monarchy. And in theory, the powers of the absolute monarchy are for the most part still there. But the convention is that the government exercises the powers of the monarch but is answerable to the House of Commons for doing so. We are only a democracy because ministers are responsible for the awesome powers that they possess to the House of Commons. And that is a pure matter of convention. If you ignore it, there are very few things that the House of Commons can ultimately do. Indeed, ultimately, it's only a convention that a government which loses a vote of confidence in the House of Commons has got to resign. There seemed every possibility at some stages during the Brexit crisis that the government might refuse to resign even if it lost a vote in the House of Commons. The Queen has theoretical powers, but they are all in the hands of the government in practice. This is a very difficult position to be in. At least in the United States, there is an alternative source of authority in the form of the US Constitution. There is no alternative form, because our equivalent of that is the reserve powers of the monarch, which the convention now is, are only exercisable on the advice of her ministers. So if some countries in Latin America, as we were saying earlier, have so many veto points that one of the roads towards democratic instability might be that they become so blocked up that the population is clamoring for a strongman, it seems to me that Britain is on the other end of the scale. It has very, very few veto powers for democracy. And it means that in principle, a prime minister who is elected, or perhaps even one who takes over by gaining the leadership of a political party without having stood in a popular election before, could take very, very extremely authoritarian steps without any inbuilt kind of institutional opposition. So one solution to this would be to say, we should do what the United States did, which is to build up one extra veto power in the form of a really strong judiciary, of a Supreme Court that's able to say what you're doing or the steps, the bounds of your powers as laid out in the United States Constitution or perhaps in the British context as centuries of precedent have established them, and we are able to overrule those kinds of attempts. But you're quite skeptical of that, as I understand it. You don't think that the role of courts should be expanded, and you think that judicial review of that form can often be quite damaging. So why is that not the answer to the problem that you yourself have laid out? Well, traditionally in the United Kingdom, the answer has been that the absence of these checks and balances is compensated for by very powerful political conventions. Now, those conventions exist as a matter of political culture, and they are pretty fragile. They can be destroyed if the cultural atmosphere changes, as to some extent it is doing as we speak. Now, an alternative to that is to have a powerful judiciary. The difficulty is, and some aspects of this problem apply equally to the United States, I think we've got to distinguish between the judiciary as a constitutional arbiter and the judiciary as an interpreter and very frequently a maker of laws. Judiciaries are traditionally not very good at acting as a constitutional arbiter, essentially because, reverting to one of my earlier answers, because all democracies, even a highly legal one like the United States, ultimately depend 
on a shared political culture on both sides of the argument, it is actually very difficult for the judiciary to act as a constitutional arbiter. In general, what has gone wrong is not that any laws have been broken, but that conventions about how governmental powers ought to be exercised have become weak and fail to stop behaviour that most liberal democrats would regard as outrageous. Now, that's not a situation in which the courts can very easily intervene. The United States has a written constitution which confers considerable powers on the judiciary, even greater powers than our judiciary possesses. But the price that the United States pays for its system of checks and balances is, first of all, a judiciary which in large respects makes the laws because the Constitution contains very broad points of principle rather than detailed rules. The judiciary is able essentially to invent rights that might not have been democratically chosen to make them apply across the entire United States when some states might quite legitimately have differed and to make them everlasting, because if once something's declared to be a constitutional right, that for practical purposes is it, until the crack of doom, unless the Supreme Court changes its mind. Now, these are quite serious disadvantages. I agree that our system has pretty serious disadvantages as well, but there is no such thing as a perfect constitution, and I don't think that more legal intervention is going to make it perfect. The other problem that the checks and balances in the US system has is an almost total immobility of the legislature when it comes to anything remotely controversial. The conventions, indeed the standing orders and rules of Congress, essentially make it very, very difficult to get, for even a majority party, to get its legislation through in the face of determined opposition, particularly if the culture of bipartisanship in the few areas where it did exist is destroyed by an attitude that it doesn't matter what the conventions are, the only thing that we care about is getting our way. And that has increasingly been the mentality within Congress. What does this say for the likely future of democracy, let's begin with, in the United Kingdom? It seems to me that if you're saying that the power of a government used to be constrained by this very strong form of norms and conventions, but those norms and conventions for a variety of reasons are increasingly weakening, and there are some governments who are willing to run Russia over them when something is sufficiently important, there would be a few possible answers. One is to say, let's codify the conventions. Let's turn what used to be based on norms into positive law and appoint somebody like a court to defend them. You're, for reasons that I find to be quite compelling, skeptical of that. The second alternative would seem to be to strengthen those norms. But a lot of the things that you were saying earlier make me think that you're skeptical of the prospects of that undertaking as well. And in that case, the third option is simply that the outcome is, you know, increasing abuses of executive power and increasing weakening of a system. Am I missing an option or what do you think is going to happen? No, I think that those are the options. I think they all have considerable disadvantages. I think it's extremely difficult to codify conventions because conventions are essentially not so much detailed rules of the sort you can codify. They are conventions about the general approach that one should adopt to a particular kind of problem. This sort of thing is incredibly difficult to codify. 
And I think that it would be useless to try because you would end up by closing every stable door from which the horse had ever bolted. You can't imagine every problem that is going to arise. That's why you need conventions and why it's necessary that the conventions should be reasonably flexible. You also have to face the fact that some conventions become redundant or undesirable for one reason or another. Over the years, they may have been appropriate 100 years ago, but not now. And the system has in it the potential for change without legislation. So I think that legislating to codify it would be a backward step. It would deprive the conventions of the flexibility that they need to have. I mean, a convention is, after all, not a rule. It is a principle which cannot be broken save at very high political cost and that depends on the political cost being there because people believe that the convention ought to be observed when they stop believing that you are sunk and you know the implication of your question is that i think that there is no solution to this problem and that is what i think I don't think there's a solution to this problem. I think every constitution in the world, whether they are highly legal constitutions like the United States or highly conventional constitutions like that of the United Kingdom, they all have it in common that they can't work without a culture that wants to make them work, without a culture that accepts that you can't always have your way. And the only solution... I think, is to recover, it will take time and it won't necessarily happen at all, the respect for democratic norms in people's attitudes. Because for as long as people have the attitude that all that counts is whether you're going to get away with it, we are frankly, in constitutional terms, sunk. It's not an optimistic message, but I'm not optimistic. Yeah, I'm not known for my optimism either. And in the American context, you know, I worry about the way in which discourse, or perhaps for lack of a better word, intellectual meme that I help to popularize and create, is actually itself doing damage under certain circumstances. You know, I was vocal about the fact that the rise of populism, especially on the right, but also on the left, when you look at some countries like Venezuela, was a genuine threat to democracy and one that had to be taken seriously, even in countries like the United Kingdom and the United States. When I made this argument, it was controversial or rather smiled at by many people. There was still an assumption that the United States has been a democracy for hundreds of years. Of course, it will always be a democracy. What are you talking about? Well, as these things often do, the prevailing wisdom has flipped completely. And about five or six years after those views were laughed at, they have become such conventional wisdom that we not only think of these countries as facing real challenges to their democratic system, which is, I think, correct, remains correct. But every time that people we don't like gain some kind of victory, or every time that some legal reform that supposedly would help to solve a problem doesn't advance through Congress in the United States, that is treated like a potential death blow to democracy. And I worry that actually the raising of the stakes in this way now itself becomes dangerous because it essentially reduces, in your terms, the willingness of people to tolerate that part of a democracy is that sometimes you lose and sometimes your opponent gets to do things you really, 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 often for good reason, dislike. Yes. Well, I think that that's absolutely right. Part of the problem 
is that this is a thing that creeps up on people. You take the democratic institutions for granted and you don't recognise the danger until it's hit you. But it's also the fact that you have to distinguish between the substantive policies that governments operate and that people have perhaps strong opinions about and the constitutional framework within which decisions about those matters are made. And people don't do that often enough. People have tended to redefine democracy in terms of particular kinds of value. They say it's essential to a democracy that there should be, I don't know, gender equality. It's essential to a democracy that there should be a vast range of rights in addition to those which are probably fundamental to the survival of any orderly state. The problem is people tend to define as democratic not just the framework for making decisions, but the outcome which they think that those decisions ought to produce. And that is, I think, extremely dangerous, and it's the reason for the phenomenon that you have just quite correctly described, where people say, you know, I can't tolerate this kind of policy, I'm going to resort to extra-constitutional methods of frustrating it. This, again, is a cultural thing, and it is a matter of the attitudes of the electorate. The combination of a contempt for constitutional norms by a large part of the population and by the government is completely devastating. There is no defence against that sort of thing, not even the judiciary. What advice would you give to the justices on the United States Supreme Court, which is to say, when I look back at the last 60 or 70 years of American political debates, at virtually every turn, on virtually all of the most important social, cultural, political questions, from abortion to the death penalty, from universal health care to political donations, it was ultimately the Supreme Court which decided and settled those issues. It used to be that people in my broad sociopolitical milieu, which is to say people in academia and journalism that tend to be on the left, were very much in favor of that because the Supreme Court had a left-leaning majority for a long time. At this point, I'm starting to see the best legal philosophers making arguments in the other direction because it so happens that conservatives now have a majority on the Supreme Court and will like to retain it for the foreseeable future. And one of the things I worry about, actually, is that the over-involvement of the court in many questions of public policy makes it over less likely that it will be able to stand up to a truly dangerous autocrat in the moments when it really counts, because it will have squandered a lot of its legitimacy. I think that's absolutely true. The United States Supreme Court absolutely exemplifies many of the problems about a highly judicial constitution. Part of the reason why it has been very interventionist is the relative immobility of Congress in the face of controversial issues. But the reason why we have a right-wing majority and an increasingly political approach to constitutional decisions in the United States is precisely the interventions that happened from the Supreme Court at a time when the court was very much more liberal. Because what has happened is that increasingly American presidential elections, and to some extent congressional elections as well, the issue has become who should have the right to appoint justices of the Supreme Court. 
So the identity of the justices of the Supreme Court has itself become a political issue. A lot of people are more inclined, for example, to vote Republican because they want Republican justices on the court. And the same, of course, for liberals who want somebody who will appoint liberal justices on the Supreme Court. So this has directly contributed to the perpetuation of a highly politicised court and has resulted in Republican presidents particularly, because they've had the biggest opportunities to appoint justices in recent years, stuffing the court with people who are going to be there for a very long time, who are selected precisely because they are relatively young, who have no retirement age and no limit on their terms, so that the judicial afterlife of a president can be 10, 20 or 30 years after he was voted out. I think that's a very serious problem. And it's a serious problem because on many of these intensely important and controversial moral issues, like abortion, for example, you've got the court essentially legislating, because that is what Rowan Wade did. Rowan Wade was a legislative decision. I mean, I know that justices of the court deny this. Stephen Breyer recently wrote a book in which he said, no, it's not a political decision. It is a decision which is informed by a legal mentality. I mean, I have a huge amount of respect for Stephen Breyer, but I simply don't think that that's a realistic description of the way in which the court answers questions as broad as rights of privacy from which the right of abortion is derived. I don't see what guidance the law can provide. The only guidance available is the personal preferences, essentially personal, moral and political preferences of individual justices, which is why in most of these issues we tot up the justices on either side and ask who they are. Everybody knows who the justices of the court are in the United States. Hardly anybody knows who the justices of the Supreme Court in the UK are. And I find the latter an altogether more reassuring state of affairs. I'm trying to decide between two different interpretations of what you're saying. One of them would be that there are serious and inherent problems with strong forms of judicial review that there are big disadvantages of having judges uh, make policy or even interfere in the business of a government in a regular way. That even in a case like abortion, as the legal scholar Jeremy Waldron has argued, the kind of legislative deals that were struck in the late 60s and 70s across Europe ended up being on various grounds preferable and succeeded in diffusing the issue compared to the legal settlement in the United States. And therefore, that perhaps the United States should actually try to become a little bit more on this count like the United Kingdom. The other interpretation of what you've been saying throughout this conversation is that each constitutional system has its own dynamics. And there's sort of little point looking to other countries and the way things work there, because you're never going to be able to make those changes and they come with their own disadvantages and their own drawbacks. And all you can do is to sort of, you know, keep your own system together. So I suppose, to what extent can there be mutual learning? To what extent should the United States learn from the role of court in Britain? And to what extent is that sort of a wrong way of posing the question? Well, I certainly don't think that any country should ignore the constitutional arrangements of other countries, because when there are issues about how one's own constitution functions, it seems to me natural and valuable to study alternatives, including alternatives that have usually been tried somewhere. 
in this country, we tend more often to look to the United States, partly as an example and partly as a warning, simply because of the common language and, to some degree, the common historical traditions. The United States exemplifies both the advantages and the disadvantages of a judicially enforced written constitution. I do not think that it could be transplanted to the United Kingdom. I do think that some aspects of it could be, but American experience suggests that that would be unwise. The other problem is, I mean, I've referred to the immobility of Congress in legislature, but of course there is an extreme immobility in the Supreme Court as well. The Citizens United decision, which dealt with the constitutionality of restricting political donations, the problem about that is, because it's, this is a constitutional right, it's going to exist forever, unless the Supreme Court changes its mind. There's no way around this. So decisions of that kind of issue by a court interpreting a constitution are basically graven in brass for the rest of the history of that society, unless there is some real legal cataclysm. That seems to me to be a highly unsatisfactory state of affairs. I'd like to come back to end our conversation on the question of a state and the future of democracies. You were saying at the beginning of the conversation that one of the reasons why governments are more likely to abuse privileges now or to follow the clamoring for security from people as if they're more capable of doing so than in the past. Um, but there may be one way, at least, in which the basic mood of the electorate has shifted in the last decades, which is that countries like Britain and the United States used to be some of the most powerful countries in the world. They used to be some of the most affluent countries in the world. They used to have very rapid economic progress for average citizens. And as you have noted in some of your work, the mood of optimism no longer holds. It is easy to feel that Western democracies are losing standing relative to countries around the world, that the future will not given the same economically favored circumstances as we've historically had. How do you think that's going to play into the future of democracy? And where do you see the fight between democracy and autocracy standing in 50 years' time? I think there have been periods in the history, certainly of European countries, perhaps less so in the United States, where the example of apparently efficient totalitarian states has proved attractive. In the 1930s, there was a very strong movement, particularly on the left, but not only on the left, in the United Kingdom, which admired the rapid industrialization of the Soviet Union and believed that a more authoritarian system, such as had produced this industrialization, would be desirable. The people who thought this were relatively ill-informed about the staggering human cost of the speed at which the Soviet Union was industrialized, but there's no doubt that that kind of thing does improve the prestige of authoritarian systems. We are beginning to see, I think, a similar attitude now to China, where there are people who feel that the autocratic character of China enables it to do things which are in the interests of the population of China and that we might perhaps take a leaf out of their book. In that sense, I think that the declining prestige of Western democracies, including the United States, is a problem for exactly the reasons that you state. Lord Sumption, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thank you.
thank you so much for listening to The Good Fight. Lots of listeners have been spreading the word about this show. If you too have been enjoying the podcast, please be like, rate the show on iTunes, tell your friends all about it, share it on Facebook or Twitter. And finally, please make suggestions for great guests or comments about the show to goodfightpod at gmail.com. That's goodfightpod at gmail.com. This recording carries a Creative Commons 4.0 international license. Thanks to Silent Partner for their song, Chess Pieces. Thank you.